0: And discover why Noble Gold Investments is the only choice for smart, secure gold investments. Or call them at 877-646-5347. Again, that's 877-646-5347. Make sure to go to TimCast.com, click join us and become a member to support this podcast and all the work we do And you'll get access to exclusive uncensored segments from Timcast IRL and way more. Now, let's jump into the first story. They're calling him the Subway Samaritan, a former Marine who was riding on the subway in New York City when a violent homeless man threatened many people on the train, made death threats and was acting so aggressively and erratically that three passengers thought it necessary to subdue him in the process. The man did lose his life. But in the video that you can see posted online, Daniel Penny, as well as the other men who subdued Jordan Neely, attempted to save his life after subduing him. They placed him in the recovery position, proving there was no intent to harm or kill this man. The the intent was simply to stop him from harming others, which is what any of us should do. Now, I've talked in the past about what I would do if I was on the train. And I saw someone violently attacking someone else. I'd say I'd I'd rush to their defense. I wouldn't even think twice. And that's what this Marine did. Now, over the past week, I was particularly frustrated that we keep seeing stories like this. We keep putting money into into lost cities and people are choosing to live in these places. And so I was I was frustrated. I said, you know, I'm not telling anybody not to donate to this guy or anything like that. I, I, I think he did the right thing. I think he's a good person. I think he should not go to prison, and I hope he doesn't. But my concern is, at what point do we, do we tell people you're responsible for choosing to live in a place run by communist extremists who will lock you up for, your defending, for defending yourself? We've seen it over and over again in many cities. And I started thinking about this. This morning, as the news broke that Daniel Penny's fundraiser has already reached two million dollars, and I thought to myself, well, for one, I was wrong. It's not just about this one individual. It's not just about what's going on in these cities. It's about the greater culture war and the message we are trying to send the world and how we counter the narrative of the extremists. And so after seeing this story from the Daily Mail, we've got your back supporters flood crowdfunding effort for ex-Marine Daniel Penny 24, including GOP 2024 hopeful Vivek Ramaswamy, who donated $10,000 as funds sort of $2 million after ex-Marine was charged over Neely's death. I saw this and I thought to myself, the narrative is being set. They're attempting to destroy this man's life and create the the perception that if you protect yourself, you are the villain. And so it extends well beyond just people who are living in New York City. It's more than just Someone saying, I'm going to go live in New York, even though I know this is what they're doing. Perhaps this one incident is the front line for breaking what's happening in these cities, for shattering what's happening with the Soros DAs. And I thought to myself, you know, last week when I said, I don't I don't want to donate to this because it's people choosing to live in what I would describe as a burning building. And I started to feel like I guess that was defeatist. I don't want this guy to go to prison. This is a good dude. The Subway Samaritan, they say. You've got this video here. Let me pull it up from the Post Millennial. Full footage reveals former Marine Daniel Penny putting Jordan Neely in recovery position. Passengers complimenting him. This is a guy who tried to save the life of the man who was just threatening his life. And it's a really great example of how we should act. And in response, the left has come out and gone the complete other direction. Conservative quote, it's anti hero to arrest Daniel Penny for killing Jordan Neely. I don't know if that's what they're trying to imply by that. The mental gymnastics needed to justify a 15 minute chokehold are wild. Now, I don't know that it was 15 minutes, but I'm looking at all of the news, I'm looking at all the stories, and I don't know. I started to feel bad. It's a combination of things that I'm seeing so many people take what what little they had to try and save the life of Daniel Penny, a man who tried to save the life of others. And here I was sitting back saying, it's your problem. Deal with it. Felt kind of bad. And then I also started to realize we got to win this. This fight right here is bigger than I realized. It's not just one more story. This is actually getting bigger than I think many people expected it to be. And so I thought, you know what? Not only am I going to contribute, but I'll, I'll call it a penalty for my lack of good faith. So I have personally contributed $20,000 to Daniel Penny's defense fund. I hope it goes to the right place. I hope it, it, it helps. I hope it makes a difference. And I hope that um, basically, I don't know, I, I, I hope that that shows I, I really do think we need to push back and win this and maybe we should not be so defeatist. I had uh, Nuance Bro. Message me saying uh, he tweeted at me saying you've you've gone to these cities you've been to New York you complain about how people should leave I've had many people say you know I can't leave even if I wanted to and I've said look I know it's hard and so I suppose my view on this is more so I think you should get out of cities I think we need moderate individuals I think we need conservative and libertarian individuals and disaffected liberals to be moving to places where they're safer places, maybe in Ohio, Georgia or Wisconsin, where not only are you probably safer, but these are frontline locations for the culture war. I think that if you stay in these cities, you will likely end up as one of these individuals falsely imprisoned, falsely arrested and falsely targeted by far left extremists and communists. I think that's all true. At the same time, I thought, why should Daniel Penny be the one person to go to prison because of a widespread national cultural problem? And is this an opportunity to pull off what we have pulled off with Bud Light at a national level as it pertains to people like Alvin Bragg and Soros district attorneys? Is this an opportunity with so many others standing up and defending Daniel Penny to send a message to the nation that we are not willing to allow Crime to run rampant and our cities to be destroyed. Could this be the opportunity to reverse course, push back, and take back our once great cities? I don't know. But you know what? I can afford to. I saw Vivek Ramaswamy put in $10,000. And I said, if there's anything worth funding, it's this battle, it's this fight. So instead of bowing out and saying, y'all are on your own, it's probably better that we actually join in the fray and say we'll do what we can to help this man win not just for himself but but for the grand message of what this represents the people of this country unwilling to let violent and murderous criminals get away with what they do it's a sad story that jordan neely died i'm upset about it i don't even support the death penalty some of the worst people in the world in prison and i'm like i don't like the death penalty a scary thought to me. The idea that you would be told by the state they're about to end your existence, strip your soul from this plane of existence. And of course, there are stories of really bad people who admit to what they do and there's proof they did it. And we know they did it. And we're like, those stories are horrifying. This person has forfeited their right to life. I understand those stories. I certainly think that there are actions you can take that you will forfeit your life. Like if you're trying to kill someone actively, and we have to stop you, and the only way could result in death, it's a sad story. But that's called self-defense or defense of others, and that's what I think we see here with Daniel Penny. I hope this guy now can rest easy. And and I'll say it outright. Look, they, y- y'all already put in two million dollars for him, and when I saw that, I felt bad that so many people were willing to stand up and hold the line in cities. And so I said, OK, I'll, I'll I'm going to do twenty thousand dollars because I'm late to the party. And it feels bad. It feels like everybody was standing up saying I am Spartacus. And I was sitting there jaded and dejected, being like, screw this, I'm out. And I shouldn't do that. I should I should make sure I'm here fighting the good fight the same as everybody else. And if the least I can do is donate to his defense fund, hopefully it will it will work out. I will also stress that running this company, which is quite successful, all thanks to you, I should actively be supporting what the people who support me believe in. And honestly, there's nothing I'd rather buy with $20,000. There's no car. There's no boat. There's no guitar, no skateboard. No, I'd rather see this man be acquitted of all charges or, in fact, have the grand jury refuse indictment. And then after all of that, I would like to see Daniel Penny. Take this money. I believe that after his legal defense is, is is completed, whatever money is left from this effort should go to him. And I hope he buys himself something nice. I hope he can live comfortably forever because this should not have happened to him. In the heat of the moment, he did the right thing, the difficult thing, in the and un- the unfortunate circumstances, and somebody lost their life. And I'm sure that was devastating to him. I think that there's a lot of things he could do differently. But I think at the end of it, if everyone is willing to hold the line, I'm missing out on the key opportunity to join in. And so I'm going to put my money where my mouth is. Here's the story. Did you know fast growing trees is the biggest online nursery in the U.S. with more than 10,000 different kinds of plants and over 2 million happy customers in the U.S.? They have everything you could possibly want, like fruit trees, palm trees, evergreens, house plants, and so much more. Whatever you're interested in, they have it for you That's an additional 15% off at fastgrowingtrees.com using the code pool at checkout. Fastgrowingtrees.com, code pool. Offer is valid for a limited time. Terms and conditions may apply. Republican Party presidential hopeful Vivek Ramaswamy has donated $10,000 to a crowdfunding effort by Daniel Perry. Penny, I'm sorry. Perry's the guy in Texas who was charged with second degree manslaughter for the death of a homeless schizophrenic. The Give, Send, Go fundraising campaign has now soared to $2 million in donations. So it's $1.97 million. They say it will be used to pay for the Long Island native's legal fees and for any future civil lawsuits that may arise, as well as expenses related to his defense. They uh, show some photos. On May 5th, Ramaswamy tweeted his opinions on the case, stating that Jordan Neely was a habitual offender who should have faced justice earlier. And he's right. In 2015, Neely kidnapped a seven-year-old girl. In 2019, Neely punched a 64-year-old man in the face. In 2021, Jordan Neely slugged a 67-year-old woman in the face as she exited the subway, breaking her nose and fracturing her orbital bone. He was arrested 44 times, yet for some reason the left is defending him. This is the story from the New Republic. Let me show you their perspective. They say the right is jumping to the defense of Daniel Penny, somehow arguing that arresting someone for manslaughter is actually pro criminal. It is. Penny surrendered to New York City authorities on Friday for a charge of second degree manslaughter after he was filmed, placing Jordan Neely in a fatal chokehold on the subway for 15 minutes. I don't know that that's true. I have not seen a 15 minute video and I've looked at I've looked the videos I have seen. Maybe I just didn't see this one. Don't show 15 minutes. Since the announcement of charges against Penny, right wing figures have advanced ludicrous and vicious ideas about it all, claiming the arrest of Penny to be unjust. The most bizarre among them being that to arrest Penny is to be pro crime. Last year, 25 people were pushed in front of trains. In San Francisco, recently, a man with a cleaver was threatening people on the BART system, which is their train system, and slashed a person with it. This stuff keeps happening our cities are in decay. If there's anything worth paying for or buying, it is the fight to push back on the escalation of crime, be it anywhere in this country. I think what really spoke to me was people saying that these were our great cities and now they're falling into decay. And it's not just about whether they're lost or controlled by Democrats or at the federal level. It's about the cultural issue at hand. Are we going to turn a blind eye and just walk away from good people doing the right thing. It's a fair point. I think we need to win at the federal level. I think Trump needs to get elected and start arresting people. I think the DOJ needs to start going into corrupt cities. This is the purpose of the federal government. We need to have people arrested and charged for their corruption and crime. And we need the feds to intervene where they won't. The Democrats do it all the time. The Republicans don't. We have to win. It's pro criminal. It's anti hero. Greg Gutfeld said on Thursday, It's time for us to get this progressive pro crime ideology to walk the plank. Godfelt's correct. Pasoba created a claim that society is now a sinking ship because morally upright Chads like Daniel Penny have to submit to Manhattan DA Alvin Bragg. Numerous other right winging conspiratorial figures like Mike Cernovich and Colin Rugg have stuck to a broader line of calling the killer a good Samaritan. They are advancing the notion, sans brain or soul, that Penny's arrest symbolizes the state punishing an individual for being a hero. And for sticking up against evil. It's true. The left is evil. No question. This is a story of several people who are on a train facing death threats. And uh, I believe I have the story. From the post-millennial. Witness says Jordan Neely started making death threats against passengers before Daniel Penny engaged him. And more importantly, it's not just Daniel Penny. It was several others. Three men. All. Thought that it was necessary to stop Jordan Neely. Now, where are the charges for those two other men? There aren't any, because it's clearly a political effort. Protests erupted because commu- and it's a small group of psychotic communists, Marxists, or far left extremists, but the city is paralyzed in fear, and they caved to these people. And I hope you all realize too nobody in New York went out and rioted for Daniel Penny. The people of New York cower in fear and let it happen. And that's where I came to the position of I'm not, I'm not gonna rush to the defense of somebody who chooses to live in this place. But I do think, I don't know. For one, it feels bad to hear about what's happening to this guy. And I do think we're seeing something much bigger than an individual story about a man named Daniel Penny. We are seeing, we're seeing something change. The Anheuser-Busch story, the collapsing sales of Bud Light gave me hope that we can turn this thing around. And I do. But I've always believed that we were going to win, that eventually things will turn around. The night is always darkest before the dawn, I say. And then I see the tremendous support here. I see everybody actually rushing full speed into this cultural battle, and I see an opportunity to win. So I don't know. I'm not going to sit here and pretend to be a saint or to be uh, any, any kind of good person. I'm just looking at this like. Oh wait, we're winning! Oh man, okay, I'm definitely gonna make sure I'm 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 doing something right in this circumstance because ignoring it or bowing out was wrong. I think it's fair to say I was wrong in the first place for not leading the charge and rallying everybody to to defend Penny or to donate to the very least and refusing to do so myself. I feel now like I I miss the moment and it feels bad. Simply put. I'm like, man, I got this one wrong. I'm I'm going to I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to lead out on this one. I'm going to do I'm going to lead out. Uh, we have to. The Wall Street Journal says charging Daniel Penny, the subway Samaritan, the 24 year old veteran faces a second degree manslaughter charge after he intervened to subdue a mentally ill man behaving erratically. They say every subway rider in New York City knows the experience. You get in the train and a passenger nearby is shouting to himself or others he may ask for money or harass a passenger. You move away as far as you can, perhaps wondering if you should intervene to calm him down or stop the harassment. Should you take the risk? Most of us walk away and get another subway car. I've been there. I know the experience having lived in New York. Someone starts acting erratically er, erratically or yelling and you walk to another car. You go through the doors and you're like, I'm going to get as far away from this person as possible. Daniel Penny, a Marine veteran, took that risk on May 1st and intervened to subdue Jordan Neely, a homeless man who was acting erratically, shouting and claiming he had little to live for. In fact, according to video and witnesses, he was issuing death threats. Penny subdued Neely, put him in a chokehold, and Neely died. On Friday, he was charged. In fact, three individuals subdued him. The question is, why doesn't anyone care about the other men? That's aiding and abetting, isn't it? It's, a, it's an accessory. It's an accomplice. Nope. It's not about the action. It's about politics. The reason the left is going after Penny is because he's the one you can see. They don't care who these other men are. They say Neely's death led to a demand for prosecution from the usual political suspects, including AOC. I believe AOC is evil and I don't want her to win. I believe she is maliciously evil. I don't think she cares about the evidence. I think she cares about chaos. They go to mention, decades ago the US made a decision to end the institutionalization of all but the most dangerously dangerous mentally ill. But too many of them now wander the streets and occasionally turn violent. Several have pushed unsuspecting passengers onto the subway tracks to their deaths. In stories, New Yorkers know too well. I know that fear. When I lived in New York City, I knew the stories, and I would stay away from the edge of the subway platform. I'd stand in the middle up against a beam cuz I knew people would shove you onto the train tracks. It was rare, but it had happened too many times, 25 times last year. Two people died. Out of millions of people who ride the subway, not not very likely, but you'd be on the subway platform and you'd see someone screaming and, and just you, you don't make eye contact. You try to avoid them. I don't know what the solution is. I just know that Daniel Penny, at the very least, shouldn't be going to prison. They say, was Penny wrong to intervene? The details of what happened will presumably be be presented at trial, but it's clear his intention wasn't to kill Neely. It was to protect himself and others. And as we know, he attempted to save Neely's life. He did not intend to hurt him. He intended to stop him from hurting others. And then after subdued, he placed him in the recovery position where Neely kept breathing and was still moving and trying to get up. Something else happened here. Penny's lawyers say their client never intended to harm Neely and could not have foreseen his untimely death. They add that they are confident that once all the facts and circumstances surrounding this tragic incident are brought to bear, Penny will be fully absolved of any wrongdoing. Even if Mr. Penny, oh, it just, just jumped on me, is acquitted by a jury, the charges against him will surely deter other potential Samaritans from intervening to subdue a seemingly dangerous person. And that's where I think the battle is. It's not about New York. It's not about Democrats. It's not about the culture war. It's uh, ultimately about what we feel is right. It's about, are we able to defend ourselves? And I think it, it, it plays a, a, big, a big role in the general idea of self-defense, Second Amendment. I do think the, uh, the, the, the culture war plays a role to a certain degree. I was saying that earlier on in the segment. What I mean to say is right now, this battle right here is, I imagine it more of an idea that we're defending, not just Penny. It's an idea that we have a right to be secure in ourselves against violent offenders and that perpetrators must be stopped. And if that's the case, let's win this fight. So I will say y'all were in this fight long before I was. I decided to join in now seeing that it feels opportunistic to be completely honest. I'm like, oh, we can actually win a major culture war victory here. OK, I'll step up. I'll pay. Absolutely. I don't know. I felt so defeatist on this one. But I think we can win it. And I think the the, the widespread push makes me feel like this could be on par with with Anheuser Bush. I think we're turning the tides. The organizational efforts are surging. And. It kind of feels like finally people are standing up and saying no to a degree they had not before. Maybe this is the kind of story where if we generate more and more news and more and more attention, just like Anheuser-Busch, we will crush the Soros-funded DAs. And this could be a turning point. If Daniel Penny wins, or at the very least, the story in and of itself, this story could have a major impact on how we win elections and put an end to the far left extremism. I see an opportunity here. An opportunity in more than just being like, well, you chose to live here. No, I see an opportunity in the message. I see an opportunity in helping a, a man who did the right thing. I see a message in rebuking Ocasio Cortez and forcing her to apologize, just like we're trying to force Anheuser Bush. And if we can force someone like AOC to admit she was wrong, then we shift the tides of this thing. That's the opportunity. So again, I feel guilty. I feel guilty for two reasons. One, I said I didn't want to donate to this guy. He chose to live here. I feel guilty in that there's actually a major culture war opportunity here, and we should help this guy not go to prison. I feel guilty that all of you, said, basically, screw you to me, and then went to fight the good fight, and I did nothing when I'm supposed to be the one saying, let's lead the charge. So all I can do is say, hey, admit fault. I see an opportunity in making a donation to push this, this fundraiser to the point where it becomes a national story. And yeah, I don't know. I felt like it was the only thing I can do. The only thing I can do when I saw this story, I was like, Am I am I really sitting here while this is going on and and refusing to be involved? It feels bad, man. So I donated. We ought to win. Ultimately, here's what I think we're going to win. The narrative. We're already starting to see it. And the fact that so many people donated shows the narrative is is on our side. I'm late to the party. Y'all were right. We have the narrative. We have saving the life of a good Samaritan, the subway Samaritan, a good man. We have the ability to send a message that you are allowed to defend yourself. And we're also sending a message that we're going to push back on Soros-funded district attorneys who arrested Daniel Neely before a grand jury received the indictment. I'm sorry, before the grand jury issued an indictment. It's political. And that's the big issue right now. It's a challenge. But I hope I hope this this works. I hope this this fund is, is good. I hope the money goes to the right place and I hope we win. And the only thing I really say is this. I saw Vivek Ramaswamy. He gave ten thousand dollars. Someone else gave ten thousand dollars anonymously. And I thought. Vivek's got way more money than I do. He's running for president. He's a good dude and I'm a huge fan. He's uh, he's worth a lot of money. And he's called for raising the voting age. He's he's got a lot of really good positions. We talked about service guaranteeing citizenship. I I am a very big fan. I'd love to see this guy in the debate stage. In fact, I'd love to see him win the presidency. To be honest, I think I don't think he will. You know, that's just me. But I'm, I'm 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 glad he's trying. He's he's doing a great job. He put in 10k, and I'm like, what if we just go nuts with this? I can give more. I can I can do this. I don't make as much money as he does. Because a lot of people make more than I do, but so I I, I gave a large sum for a variety of reasons. One, I, I can. All right? I don't want people to think like, "Wow, you know, it's like, no, look, we do we do well here, right?" I should, considering I wasn't, you know, I'm late to the party, and uh, y'all have reason to criticize me for not being up, you know, right, right, right on the on the on the on the front of this one. And then I'm actually hoping that, you know, when I saw the Daily Mail say, "Wow, look how much money Vivek gave." I was like, if I give more, can this pressure someone else to give more than me? Are there people I always complain about wealthy people who aren't putting more money into the culture war. And that's another thing where I was just like, how could I not have just been like, let's do this. Let's do this. Let's give money. okay, let's make it. Let's make it like this. I challenge anybody who can to donate more than I could. Let's make it an auction. Who's got the balls and the ability to donate more money than I did to this guy's legal defense fund? I don't know. I don't think I'm the only one. I think there's probably a lot more people who can and should donate to this guy's defense fund. Let's make it let's make it a cultural challenge to outdo each other and how much we are giving to win win these battles. Whatever. Fingers crossed, guys. You know, I'm I'm i I I'm I'm sad about the story. I I, I wish this guy didn't lose his life. But uh, it's true. You know, a few things that moved me was someone said, Tim, you claimed that you'd drop kick someone if you saw them attacking another person on a train. And I said, yeah, but I wouldn't choose to live in these places. I got out of there. Then I had people saying that it's just not possible for them to pull their kids, their family, some people, their wives left them. That was one that was big to me. They say, look, I'm, I'm separated. I can't legally leave the state. I can't abandon my kids. And I'm like, yeah. You know, part of it was like I'm in this national divorce place where people are saying, get out of cities, national divorce is coming. And I'm like, then, then we need people to move to the swing states to win this battle. I don't want a national divorce. But at the very least, so long as the battle rages, I suppose it's wrong of me to say give up. I'll leave it there. Good luck, everybody. Good luck, Daniel Penny. And uh, I hope everybody cons- considers joining me in the fray. And I hope anybody who can gives more than I did. And then we'll see what happens. Next segment's coming up at 1 p.m. on this channel. Thanks for hanging out, and I'll see you all then. Vice Media is dead. Wall Street Journal reports Vice Media to sell itself as it files for bankruptcy. It's actually a lot worse than that. They're not really selling themselves, the company is being given away to its creditors because it can't pay them back. This is, quite honestly, the most epic and massive get woke, go broke we've ever seen. Perfectly exemplifying get woke, go broke in so many ways. Now, for most of you, you know, many of you, maybe not. Vice Media was the darling of the digital media landscape. Once valued at $5.7 billion, it is now worth nothing. It is worth negative. Because not only is Vice worth less, they have debt and liabilities. The story is actually fairly crazy. Soros Fund and Fortress among lender group that bid roughly two point two. I'm sorry, two hundred twenty-five million for former digital media darling. Now, of course, I tweeted about this, and you get these leftists who are just desperate to defend Vice for stupid reasons, saying it's a two hundred twenty-five million dollar deal, dude. <laughs> it's not zero. No, it's a two hundred twenty-five million dollar deal. Because these groups already loaned that money to the company and they can't pay it back. So they're going to assume full control over it. So short, sure, technically, but they're also going to be absorbing the liabilities of the company. Oh, boy, we got a lot of updates on what this means for Vice and its staff and the culture war. But this is quite possibly what's well, a warning sign to all of those get woke, go broke may not be law, but it is a tendency and it's real. And I'll give you the simple version before we start, which I want to break down after I read the news. How Vice fell. Now, A lot of people say that without Gavin McInnes, one of the original founders, it was doomed. I'm not so sure, but maybe. I think with Gavin, uh, Shane Smith, Saru Alvi, and then later Eddie Moretti, the company was skyrocketing. They were producing amazing content and everybody wanted to be a part of it. Gavin uh, leaves. I don't know at what point Eddie Moretti came in, but uh, uh, Gavin McInnes leaves. He's bought out. And the company tries going a bit more mainstream over the next few years. It, it skyrocketed in value. The crazy thing is they were all rich. And now I'm assuming they're still rich. The company's effectively dead. And I don't see any way this company can be saved. It's just, well, it's been a zombie for years. But the simple, simple version here is, I was there 10 years ago, just just about 10 years ago is when I started. And I feel like you had this great culturally relevant product that spoke to young people, to its rebellious nature and for freedom and individuality and fearlessness. But they sold out to special interests who gutted the soul of the company. It's almost like. This company was on the rise and powerful interests saw that Vice was going to dominate. So they decided to destroy it from within to then wear it like a skin suit. And the executives advice let it happen. And now it's worth nothing. Nothing. Here's the story from The Wall Street Journal. They report Vice Media said it has received a rescue offer and filed for bankruptcy protection. A dramatic turn for a digital news darling once promised to upend mainstream media. The bankruptcy filing marks the latest downfall of media upstarts that years ago commanded sky-high valuations, only to struggle to compete with the likes of Meta's platforms, Facebook and Alphabet's Google for ad dollars. Last month, BuzzFeed said it was closing BuzzFeed News after it continued to lose money. I love how BuzzFeed News tried to do this thing where it's like, donate to support our cause. Give us money. It's smart. Vice should have done the same thing. But Vice sold its soul, and it was never going to work. There's more. In its heyday, the hip, irreverent media company, co-founded by Shane Smith, attracted a bevy of inv- investors, including 21st Century Fox and private equity firms. In 2017, it secured for a $450 million investment from TPG, leading to a $5.7 billion valuation that made Vice the most valuable media company in the US. It's amazing, isn't it? But the company, which owns a production studio, creative agency and digital publisher, Refinery 29, struggled to mature into a major media force and didn't manage to live up to its evaluation. It started looking for a buyer willing to pay just a fraction of its earlier valuation and struggled to cover basic costs, falling behind on bills from its vendors. It recently cut staff and shut down its Vice News Tonight broadcast. Apparently, in the past few months, they stopped paying their debts, which is why they're going into bankruptcy. On Monday, the company said a group of its creditors, including Soros Fund Management, Fortress Investment Group, and Monroe Capital, had agreed to buy Vice for about $225 million and take on significant liabilities. The agreement is subject to higher bids from other parties, it said, so it could go another way. Vice, which filed for Chapter 11 11 protection in the U.S. bankruptcy court for the Southern District of New York, said its media brands would continue to produce content. This accelerated court supervised sale process will strengthen the company and position vice for the long for long term growth. Bruce Dixon and Hazefa Lakandwala, vice's co-chief executive, said in a statement, I, I do want to point out one of the things that I'm hearing. People are quite perturbed over advice because the people who destroyed the company are staying and protected. They gutted it. I, I, I just have to wonder what it's like to be Shane Smith. The guy who starts this company along with Sarush and Gavin, who's leading the charge, who's running the company, Gavin gets booted, and then he hands over leadership positions to some of the stupidest people in the world and grinds this company into dirt. Now, look, I like Shane Smith. Uh, as far as I know, the interactions I've had with him, he was he was a really nice guy, he was a good guy, and he took care of those around him. But um, I gotta say. In my experience, the very brief interactions I've had with him, it does seem like he would surround himself with incompetence. He would give people who did not have the talent or ability leadership positions. At least that's what I saw. Now we're looking at these individuals who quite literally rammed the country straight into the ground, and they're staying? If, you, if you're filing for bankruptcy, you fire these people immediately. Jeez. To be fair, though, they've barely been on board that long. It was Nancy De- Dubick, whatever her name was, who was CEO up until, I think, February. So these guys coming in may have been desperately trying to save the company from what Nancy did. But hey, I gotta, I gotta say, it is funny. Shane steps down as CEO. Nancy steps in, grinds the company into mud. Oof. The company said it received funding from the bidders to maintain operations. Vice said it expects the financing and cash generated from ongoing operations to fund its business during the sale process, which it anticipates to close in the next two to three months. Vice gained popularity, blah, blah, blah. This we know. Started in the mid 90s, a Montreal based punk magazine and ultimately set up shop in hipster Brooklyn. It built a popular digital video and TV operation targeting young consumers. Yeah, it was known for its stunts such as sending Dennis Rodman to North Korea to meet with Kim Jong-un. About a decade ago, Vice became part of an elite circle of digital media companies that challenged established publishers. Mr. Smith, who ran the company as CEO for many years, more than once lobbed threats aimed at larger competitors, saying Vice would eat their lunch and was the only media company that truly understood millennials. At the time, Mr. Smith told the UK's Observer newspaper he wanted to be the next CNN and ESPN. And you know what happened? You know what I think? These people knew that he was a threat, and so they subverted him. This Nancy woman who came in as CEO, she oversaw the collapse of a multi-billion dollar company into nothing. I don't know why Shane Smith gave up control to this woman, but I wonder if it was frustrating for him to watch that happen. I've, I've long believed that Shane Smith is a genius. Uh, It's why I wanted to work for Vice. I had seen him give an interview on the Colbert Report. I've talked about it before. And here's this guy, and he was taking the world by storm. But how is it that he allowed this to happen? I honestly don't know. And maybe it was out of his control. I feel bad. I don't know what it must feel like to have built a company up over 25, 30 years into a multi-billion dollar company, give up control to some woman who then grinds it to dirt. Dirt. I wonder. And they claim they understand millennials, but I really don't think so. I don't think they do. I think the culture war creates a very serious problem for any new company that's trying to emerge in the space because you no longer have the mass appeal of the old networks because there's just too many options online, which means that Vice did have a tremendous opportunity being first in and best dressed. But I just he didn't get it. They say Vice's business has faced challenges for years. The company missed its 2017 revenue goal of $805 million by more than $100 million. The Wall Street Journal reported at the time when Vice fell short of its revenue goals, investors, including private equity firm TPG and TCV, Walt Disney, Hearst, began more aggressively pushing for the company to turn a profit. Vice's digital business, once the main draw for eye-popping eight-figure advertising deals, found it harder to pitch itself in that central role as traffic had dropped. U.S. digital traffic in, whoa, holy crap, you guys, U.S. digital traffic in March, 20 million monthly unique visitors was half of what it was in March, 2019, according to digital media measurement company Comscore. Wow. I think Timcast, the Timcast network is doing better than that. (laughs) Yikes, man. You know, I worked for this company. I told them I had a vision. I had a dream. And they said, yeah, yeah, I've been there, done that. I don't blame them. I mean, look, they're making way more money. They made nearly a billion dollars in 2017. That wasn't good enough. We're nowhere near that. But I genuinely believe that if I, at this company, Vice, if they came to me and said, you are a young visionary, Tim, let's have you start working on technology, methodology, and business development. Vice would be, would be the new CNN. But I don't blame them. I mean, it's their business. They're a lot older than me. They can do whatever they want. Now, here I am a couple years in. I think we're two years in to TimCast.com.
2: With the Lucky Lance you can get lucky just about anywhere.
0: I think uh, Timcast as a corporation has now been around for three or four years, and I've been doing this work personally for a long time, but uh, I started the YouTube channel in 2017. So going on year six of being an individual producer and two years of running a website, and we're already doing very, very well. Very well to the point where we're expanding. We have set up a coffee company. We've got a coffee shop currently under construction. Apparently, several people have found it and have started visiting it. We're building a social club. We've got a lot of stuff in the works. The coffee brand is selling like, like hotcakes, castbrew.com. I'm approaching this very differently to how many of these other people approached it. Vice viewed media as this singular entity that they were going to make content, attract eyeballs and sell ads. I realized this a while ago. That's unreliable. That if at any moment you lose access to that audience or they move on or something happens, your business ceases to function. You need culture. It's a culture war. And I realized a a long time ago, winning a culture war and building a company in today's ecosystem means building up culture, talking to the audience and figuring out what people are willing to get behind, why they're willing to get behind it. And that means building a business isn't about, I don't know, making coffee and selling it. It's not about making videos and getting people to watch them. It's about building culture all around. And so this is what we're doing in a bunch of different ways to create businesses that will be part of a company that's not just about making content and opining, but about producing culture. I don't think Vice realized that. And so I think Vice was chasing culture. That's why they got woke. They're going to say the stickiness of the eyeballs wasn't as strong as we thought and audience move on, said Mr. Kassan. I think it's wrong. I think what happened was that Vice got woke. I think that they started targeting insane content in desperation, creating an inconsistency with what the audience expected and what they were producing. The example that I've often given, and I love to give and I'll give you now, Vice ran an article that said this horrifying app can show you women topless. And it was an AI app where if you took a picture of a woman, it would auto generate an image of what she looks like with no shirt on. Using the shape of her body, it would then just create it. So it wasn't really her body, but it was the first foray that we saw in mainstream media into deepfake porn, which is, yeah, it's kind of creepy. The thing is, if Vice of 2013 saw this, they would have written this amazing app can show you any woman topless. Now, you may say, "Whoa, that's crude and crass and offensive. I know Vice was intending to be. And that's what they had been for two decades, crude and crass. And people liked it. It's edgy. It's funny. And you don't take it too seriously. Then how did Vice go from being sex, drugs and rock and roll into hall monitors? Does anybody have fun? Is it edgy or exciting or entertaining to march in lockstep with Walmart? But that's what they thought the money was. Gone. Here we go. Mashable sold off for 50 million, one fifth of its uh, value. BuzzFeed collapses. I think the big thing about this story is how, well, it was sold for actually less than zero. Soros and Fortress already lent it this money, or it, it's 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 about it, it is filing for bankruptcy, and it will be sold. We have a bunch of websites popping up explaining what you need to do. I love this one, vmgrestructuring.com. We're taking decisive steps to strengthen our financial position and achieve long-term growth. This is the most, most pathetic and sad thing. When was the last time you watched Vice? We've got a couple documentaries coming out. We're uh, going through uh, legal verification stuff with it right now. And I think they'll do fairly well. And I think we're going to stay within our means. And we're going to aim to produce content that builds culture and generates memberships. And uh, to a certain degree, ad revenue. Ad revenue helps offset things. But I think about Vice News tonight, and what they tried doing, and why the shows failed, why why the brand is is crumbling. In 2013, they were smart enough to hire me, and uh, Shane Smith. Uh, so it, it, people, it, it's really hard to explain to people who are not smart. You know, when I when uh, uh, I said that it's basically being sold for zero, I get this guy, and he's like. You mean it was sold for 225? You're so dumb. It's like, wow. Trying to explain complexities to people who don't have the capabilities, it's not easy. The company already gave them the debt years ago. And so now they are going to claim that debt as the purchase, meaning no money exchange. I think it's $20 million for operations. So yeah, they don't get it. They're not smart enough. And this is where we are now. Vice did not understand. They start, they, they go from people like me. The point I was trying to make was that Shane Smith said at the Knight Foundation Awards, we weren't planning on doing news until Tim Pool came here. It took some convincing, but they, they finally agreed to hire me. I did some field reporting, gave them massive, shattering live stream numbers. They were like, this is incredible. Let's launch Vice News. Let's do this. Let's get Tim Pool. Let's do more of it. And when I covered Ferguson for Vice News, it was the first time any non-VICE entity surpassed Vice in terms of viewership that's what I was told. And uh, they weren't smart enough to listen to me when I said I knew how to build this and how to grow this. And that's fine. Who am I? It's kind of sad, though, I think about it. I don't I, I don't know what the, what the deal is. You know, maybe in, in 30 years we'll be bankrupt. Maybe I'm still naive. Maybe Shane Smith is sitting on a pile of cash and he's laughing saying, I got my exit." You know what you're talking about. Maybe from where I stand in my experience, what I see is a company. That was smart enough to hire someone like me and, the pe- and, and my friends and people around me. But that eventually started hiring these low-quality, yuppie hipster types with weak opinions who aren't smart enough to tell you what's actually going on in the world. They hired them to tell people what's going on in the world. And thus, the whole premise of the show was it's a garbage news show of, of, of garbage content. And we're, and we're hoping these deals persist. I go back to the early days of Vice. I don't know too much about it. You have to ask Gavin. But I know that Vice magazine was uh in venues and and American Apparel and things like that. And with these deals, they said like we have a million magazines in circulation. That sounds fantastic, but you don't really know how many people are actually reading the magazine, do you? But it was smart. Because then you go to an advertiser and say, "Look, a million magazines circulation. We're in every store here, we're in all these venues, young people, this is where they go, and you're right there. You want to buy from us." And it works. You get into the digital world and you get placed on the front page of YouTube, you get millions of views, you say the same thing. But it never was really there. They did not capture people, inspire people, and build personalities. I think this may have been one of the biggest faults of Shane. He was adamant not to have large uh, prominent personalities because the brand must be bigger than everybody else. That's the general idea. And it's not completely wrong. But with Fox News, you have Tucker Carlson, had you have Hannity, you have these prominent personalities that represent your brand that people can attach to and say, I like this person. Vice didn't want to go there. Even Shane Smith doesn't even have that that many followers, despite the press rounds that he's done over the past 10 years. And thus, Vice has no brand. It's nothing. It was a hollow shell of amorphous youth, I don't know, terminology and jargon. But I think about the shows they produced. They went from edgy, crass individuals to stodgy, uptight urban liberals. Boring, not interested, not punk rock, not honest, not authentic. It was garbage. Seeing someone like Shane Smith in North Korea, seeing these individuals that they originally had hosting these shows from the original Vice show, it was authentic. That's what people liked. That's why it worked on YouTube, authenticity. Then. They bring in the most plastic, inauthentic personalities and become a garbage brand. Vice, they called it. But it wasn't vice. It was plastic. It wasn't punk rock anymore. It's corporate. So how do you make a, a, an edgy brand corporate and expect to keep your audience? Sayonara, I suppose. It's sad. I do want to point out there are, there, there are some, uh, some funny things here. In this uh, uh, tweet from Max Tanny, a media reporter, he says, "Vice's email to staff regarding the company's decision to file for bankruptcy, section 27 reads: What happens to severance and/or other separation benefits? It's the company's intention to make severance payments to impacted employees, but some are subject to bankruptcy court approval, which could impact timing and amount." Here's the funny thing: after the word severance in the sentence, the bold font becomes unbold or whatever it's called. There's a font change, meaning it was edited. One person says, "If that's a legit font change in the middle of number 27, I'd be concerned." They're saying, "Everything's fine. You have nothing to worry about if you work for Vice, your job is secure. Severance on the other hand, we're not sure you'll get. We'll see." I love that one. What happens to severance and or other benefits? It's our intention to make the severance payments, but who knows? My prediction. They are going to fire a lot of people, sell off massive assets. I would not be surprised if Soros Fund Management, in an effort to recover the $225 million it lost, sells everything to recover its losses and runs vice into a skeleton crew because it's worth something. After they sell off everything to recover their losses, maybe they'll sell it to turn a very, very, very small profit of a couple million bucks. From the biggest media company in the country to a trash blog that nobody watches. What a sad legacy. It's your warning. Get woke, go broke. We'll leave it there. Next segment's coming up at 4 p.m. on this channel. Thanks for hanging out, and I'll see you all then. Vivek Ramaswamy generated some controversy when he said that people ages 18 to 25 years old should have to pass a civics test if they want to vote. I don't know if that's the appropriate way to deal with the the issue of ignorant voters, because I don't know that age is a determining factor in whether or not you're going to be a good voter or a bad voter. Maybe people just need to pass some kind of high school civics exam to vote. But still, There's no guarantee that an individual will be smart or capable enough to vote no matter how old they are, no matter how much money they make. It's a tough question. The question that we're trying to answer is how do we make sure that those who are voting actually care about what they're voting for and aren't just voting because of social pressures or tribal celebrity reasons or otherwise? Which brings me to this story. Gen Z for change. You saw the title of this video, my friends, a Gen Z Democrat was owned so bad on social media that his heart started racing and he was he he admitted himself to the emergency room. And so this brings me back to the point about Vivek Ramaswamy. Yo, if Gen Z wants change, but they are so frail that when they engage in conversation, they have to rush themselves to the emergency room. Gen Z, y'all are not confidence building. But to be fair. I I really detest this Gen Z for change thing. You don't speak for all of Generation Z, dude. You speak for progressive activists. That's it. But that's the game they're trying to play. They say we are Gen Z. Gen Z is us because the perception they want to create is that if you are someone who is 26 years or younger, you must be progressive. Otherwise, you're a weirdo. Despite the fact that Gen Z, for the most part, is in the minority progressive. That's right. And it's their own data showing this. But let me show you the story and I'll break down for you what happened. I'd like to introduce you to Jeremy. Jeremy, buddy, bro, if you if you are putting yourself in the ER over this, I hope you're doing all right, man. I don't know what the issue is. I, I, I He says he has some kind of heart issue on this. If you cannot handle the heat, get out of the kitchen. You should not be doing this work. It is a miserable business you get attacked, you get death threats. I was swatted 15 times last year. It is not something I'd recommend to the faint of heart. If this is where you are finding yourself, bow out. It ain't for you. I hope you're doing okay, buddy. And I hope you're looking at the data. But the story is as such this young man, who is a content creator for Gen Z for Change, here we have them on, on TikTok, Gen Z for Change, made the outrageous claim in a Twitter space that 30% of black people were shot every year or something to that effect. Let me play for you the clip. Where Nuance Bro, we've had on the show a commentator, I guess you consider him fairly moderate. He doesn't really take sides. He just kind of calls people out if they're, you know, if he perceives them to be hypocritical or uh, he generally just, he's his own guy. He's his own guy. But he gets a, Nuance Bro typically gets a lot of respect from people in the more disaffected liberal libertarian space. And in this video of a, a Twitter space, he owns this kid so hard. The kid has to go to the hospital. Let me show you the clip first. I'll play it for you, and then I'll show you the sequence of events, which ultimately lead Gen Z for change, progressive Democrat, general Zer, to going to the ICU. Let me play this clip. Here we go.
3: No, 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 no. You're telling me 13.2 million black people are getting shot and killed unarmed every year. There is context to that. There's definitely context to those numbers. Dude, you're fucking crazy, dude. That's like a fucking holocaust, and then, dude, every black person would be dead in like fucking three years. Like, what are you talking about? That's crazy. What are you saying? Yet we're still dying. Dude, in record you know what the actual answer more is. Than white- Jeremy, do you know what the actual answer is? Because I actually have the real numbers. I like you've clearly never done this. Is I'm I'm fucking mind blown right now, dude.
2: The real number.
3: <laughs> by washington post keep tracks of this unarmed black people shot by police men and women it's usually like 10 people dude it's like 10 maybe maybe like 20 in a year sometimes it's like eight you know it it's average. like seven to like like 22 maybe like that's what it is not million like that's just total do you believe that uh, I'm going to have to do more research. If you send me the link, I'll look. You it. were claiming like fucking, what was the number, Jonathan? 30 13.2 million. million. You said 30% of the entire black population. That is crazy. Roughly, yeah. Like, and like, I, I actually dude, believe that. Is that is insane. Like 20 to 30%. Like if, dude, legit, if Harry and Chris were in here even right now, they would be like, dude, what the fuck? We got to tell Elise to fire this guy. This guy's fucking nuts. Like, he's out of his fucking mind. He's smoking more crack than fucking uh, Hunter Biden. Like this is insane, dude. That's two Chicago's worth of black people. Yeah, I can't time. believe what I'm hearing. Like, do you, they don't have enough bullets to fucking
0: do that? Probably. Okay. Is like, twenty? Is fifteen to twenty percent fair then?
3: <laughs> no, no. because then it's like. 6 do you point, know six, numbers? Like, what did you get in in math class? What grades did you get, dude? Like, I can't believe. Have you never talked to anybody like about this issue? Like with numbers ever. I am like, guys, people in the audience, can I get some reactions in here? Like, what are you guys thinking about this? Like, are you guys as shocked as I am? Like, this is insane. This is crazy. You don't even have to know about the the crime issue at all to know what these claims are, are
0: insane. He, he said after two minutes of this is 15 to 20% fair. Making the argument that 15 to 20% of the black population is shot and killed every year, which is the most insane thing. And this person makes content for Gen Z for change, claiming all this progressive stuff about young people. Dude, that is not Gen Z. I gotta tell you, I know for a fact a lot of Gen Z people had them on the show, they do not believe psychotic nonsense like this. Now, if you're a Gen Z person, you want to associate with these people and get mocked so ridiculously, you end up in the ER. So be it, man. Nuance Bro tweets, I understand the optics of owning someone so hard in debate that it sends them to the ER and a psych ward and gets them to delete their account as an element of humor in it. But I truly hope the young man is doing well and recovers swiftly. Please do not be cruel by piling on. I'm showing you this first because, dude, look. We don't want these fragile people in politics, voting and all that stuff. We get it. But uh, this one individual, I want him to be okay. All right. And, you know, I thought about this. If simply being owned in a debate, put him in the ER, I'm kind of concerned about doing a video about him, but it needs to be said. Gen Z for change is a political activist organization. And some of their some of the people associated with them have been getting prominent social media play. So we need to call out the manipulations. And I'll tell you why this is important, why I care. Gen Z for change is attempting to create the perception that Gen Z supports progressive Democrat and far left policies. That way, if someone is in Gen Z and they want to fit in and be popular, they say, oh, that's the mainstream. I want to be on the right side of history. We got to call out those lies and that manipulation and highlight just house. I'll be nice ignorant and wrong these people are. Take a look at this. So he says, my heart is racing. This has not been a good night. Then going to the ER, then keeping it calm, cool, collected, just got admitted, might be here two days. So glad I'm done with school. It would have been hell trying to catch up. Dude went to the emergency room. Dude, if you are wrong and you are, do not engage in these debates. But see, this is the thing. Democrats need Gen Z to vote for them. They need to make sure they get the most vapid and ignorant voters possible. Otherwise, no one's going to support psychotic policies that destroy everything and make your future worse. Here's what I want, Gen Z. I want all y'all to be able to buy houses for a good price. I want you to make a ton of money doing your job. I want you to be able to work at McDonald's. And make 20, 30 bucks an hour. I genuinely mean it. I want the economy to be so good that you can be the lowest of skilled labor, generalist labor. And I mean that with all due respect. I'm, I'm not saying to be derisive. I'm saying you walk up to a company, you say, I've never done the mailroom before. And they say, We're going to hire you. Say, Okay, well, I need to make $50,000 a year to pay my bills. And they're saying, We got you one better. We got you 75. I want the economy so good that they're paying premium for you. Then you go buy a house. You get a white picket fence, a family, get a dog. We get that American dream just for you. That's what I want. But you're not going to get it with people who are voting for policies that are destroying your future. And don't look at me. I'm not saying the Republican Party is doing any favors either. I'm saying these people in the establishment are trying to trick you and they take this dude. Make he makes videos. He clearly has not even read one bit of data on this. And do you want to be aligned with that? I am simply telling you to be independent and vote for the policies you've researched that will make your future better and make the future for other people better, too. I do not like these stories of unarmed black men being shot. I want it to stop. But let's be real. I jump over. Well, we got one more. Oh, so I want to I show you this. Uh, Jeremy saying he didn't go to a psych ward. He's in the ICU for being piled on. Jeez. I jumped over to uh, my good friend perplexity.ai. It's an AI chatbot that in some ways is better than ChatGPT, but in some ways kind of worse. But anyway, I asked it, how many unarmed black men get shot by police each year? And it said, in 2019, police fatally shot 13 unarmed black men, according to the Washington Post database. They say there were 1,048 fatal shootings in total, yada, yada, yada. So I pulled the source, thank you, perplexity.ai. And uh, sure enough, it does say they're fact-checking Charlie Kirk. He said, eight, the real number was 13. 13 unarmed black men were fatally shot in 2019. All right, here's another question. How many police interactions happen every year? In 2020, 53.8 million residents age 16 or older had one or more contacts with police. That is to say, out of 53.8 million interactions, 13 unarmed black men died the year prior. So let's just say, let's just, let's just be generous and say the previous year was even 40 million or 30 million. Let's say it was half for some reason. Probably not. It's probably comparable at 53, maybe 52. 13 is an astronomically low number. Now, one is too many. 13 is certainly too many. However, we have to understand that bad things happen. And of these 13 unarmed black men, we didn't say innocent. We don't know. We don't. They're innocent until until uh, found guilty in a court of law. So I will say innocent. But I just want to point out the possibility that some of these men may have been swinging fists or, or beating a cop or something like that or threatening the life of another person. We don't know for sure. But we don't want anyone to die. Not a single person. But the number is certainly substantially less. I asked perplexity AI, how many white men are killed? It's a white men specifically. It said that in 2022, 502 white people were killed by police in the United States compared to 42 black people. Now, that is wrong. I corrected it. I said you are incorrect. That source says 313 black people were killed by police in 2022. And it did provide a correction. And I have the stats right here. Statistics showing that in 2022, Three hundred and thirteen black people were killed by police. Five hundred and two white people were killed by police. Two hundred and sixteen Hispanic people. So it is disproportionate. I don't know why. Some people argue that it's because we see disproportionate crime among young, uh, young black men that they make up, I think, around half of violent crime typically in these cities. I don't know. That's true. Maybe, maybe not. There could be a tie to this based on culture and poverty. I think culture and poverty play the biggest role in why any group commits crimes. Having come from an area where I saw a lot of white trash, hillbilly type individuals getting into trouble all the time and getting arrested all the time, I think poverty is the biggest factor in why uh, someone is going to be driven to crime or something like that. Culture, of course, playing a role. Now, for whatever reason, I think you can look back on history, you can see cultural challenges that result in these numbers, but the numbers exist. So is the reason we see more Black people killed by police due to the fact that there are more uh, a disproportionate amount of crimes being committed. It's possible. I'm not here to tell you all the data because I'm not a data scientist. I'm just saying an argument presented may be the case. Maybe not. The left argues the inverse outright, saying it's only because police are racist. But I don't think that is true, because in some of these circumstances, especially with that uh, recent killing, I think it was in uh, um, was it Memphis? The cops who beat the guy to death, they were black. The left then argues, but they're black and they're upholding white supremacy, which is just they're desperately trying to justify their positions, which are not, they're they're nonsensical. I think one of the challenges that we face as any reasonable human being in this country that does not like racism is that people choose to self-segregate based on race. It's a fact, and we we, we don't like it. Now, a lot of the segregation did originate in policy, and it was rooted in people wanting to self-segregate. You ended up with white neighborhoods, black neighborhoods. You still have them today. Even after we've banned segregation, redlining, blockbusting, etc., although some of it does still happen, you still will have an Asian wanting to live in an Asian neighborhood, a white person wanting to live in a white neighborhood. Hispanics trying to live in Hispanic neighborhoods. Doesn't it make sense? Look, if I move to Japan, am I going to want to move to the heart of hardcore Japanese culture when I don't speak Japanese? Or? Am I going to be attracted to places where people speak a little bit of English? This is reality. We see it in every single country. Someone, you know, look, I'm in Turkey. I'm visiting a tourist location. I hear two people speaking North American English and I'm like, hey, Americans and they're Canadians. I'm like, yeah, close enough. How's it going? What are you doing? I can talk. We can share ideas. How do, you, how do you like it? I walk up to someone who's speaking Turkish. I'm like, I don't know what they're saying. That's what happens. People want to be near people they share things with. If you grew up eating a certain kind of food, you want to live by the market that has the ingredients for the food that you like. And this creates racial segregation. And I think it does suck. I think it's a problem. I think the future of this country is going to be more mixed in terms of different people living in different neighborhoods. We're all going to get along. And I I think we're working towards that future. But I think it's the left. And I think it's these progressives that are pushing us in a very, very dark direction by pushing for segregation and exacerbating the lies. How is it this young man believes that 13 million black people are being killed every year? That's insane. As Nuance Pro points out, that would wipe out the black population in a matter of years. He says three years. He's technically correct. But basically what happened is it'd be a diminishing return. So if, if you have, let's say, let's say, um. What do we we have? We have 327 million. We're talking about 30 million black people, 13 point million in the first year, dropping you down to about 17. Then a third of that is going to bring you down to about six. So you're going to be now at about 11 million. Then a third of that is about three and a half, four. So now you're so it's not quite three years because it's if it's only 30 percent each year, you're eventually he says it's it's basically a Holocaust, bro. It's two holocausts every year. If those numbers were correct, they're not ultimately it comes down to this Gen Z for change. I don't work for any political action groups. I hate the Republican Party. I hate the Democratic Party. Hate's a pretty strong word, but I I don't like either of them. A small handful of politicians I do like. In 2020, I was a big fan of Yang and Tulsi Gabbard. But now that they're basically out, I don't know who's left. Ro seems to be okay, You know, but then on the Republican side, there's a small handful of libertarian individuals, which I think are being honest. I like Thomas Massey. I don't agree with them on everything. Gen Z for change. Oh, they have a bunch of facts. Sixty three percent, the percentage of Gen Z voters who supported progressive House candidates. Now, I want you to understand this. Imagine you watch this guy, Jeremy's videos. They say 40 percent, the percentage of Gen Z voters whose primary news source is TikTok or Instagram. Imagine that you're watching his videos and he's wrong about all of it. And then you believe it. And then it's you. That one day is standing before a group of people and you say something so stupid, everyone starts pointing and laughing at you. Your heart races, you nearly faint, and you ask to be rushed to the hospital. Do you want to be that? If you do, fine. I'm not telling you to not push back and say, hey, you're wrong about these things if you think you're right. I'm just saying, please be right and don't follow these people who are wrong because wow, are they wrong. And here's the dude doing his videos. Stop with the climate doomism. We know it's scary, but we as Gen Z will make the difference needed. And therein lies the big problem. Instagram and TikTok. Well, TikTok banned us at TimCast. TimCast IRL was banned. Why? Don't know. We had a politician on and said, TikTok won't allow them to use the platform. Only Democrats. TikTok only allows certain views. They are manipulating you. Now, some of you probably concerned about looking stupid. Some of you probably don't care because you're going to say, as long as I fit in, what do I care if it's right or wrong? Do you? I don't care. I'll do me. I'm just telling you this. That dude was humiliated and not by conservatives. Nuance Bro is not some conservative guy. So imagine inside your bubble, you fit in. That bubble's very small. They're trying to convince you it's bigger, but it's not. You're going to walk out in New York City and you're going to say something stupid. In fact, Nuance Bro points it out. What did he say, Harry and Chris? He said, if they heard this, they'd be like, get this dude out of here, fire him. He's nuts. Yeah, even among your peer group, they're going to be like, dude, you're insane. How could you be so wrong? How could you embarrass us like that? Stand true to your beliefs but make sure they're predicated on fact and you're not saying insane psychobabble nonsense, lest you rush to the hospital in all of your frailty. But the last thing I'll add on this one is, dude, if, if, if that's really where we're at, young people needing to go to the emergency room because they were wrong one time online, Gen Z, y'all are in trouble. So how about you prove this guy wrong? How about, I, I think Gen Z for change should get rid of this dude. Look, bro, I hope you're doing all right, but you should not be working this job. They need to fire you and drop your content. But you know what? I'll take it. Keep that dude on. Keep him on. And then we'll ask Gen Z, is that what you want to be? Do you want to be a strong leader or do you want to be so frail, scared and pathetic? You go to the hospital emergency room because words. Crazy. I'll leave it there. Next segment's coming up at 6 p.m. on this channel. Thanks for hanging out and I'll see you all then. Miller Lite is trending on Twitter after a video surfaced of a woke feminist beer commercial for Miller. And everyone's saying this is Miller Lite's, hey, Bud Light, hold my beer moment. But the reality is, I have important context for you, my friends. This ad, which you may have seen, it's from one month before Bud Light's Dylan Mulvaney fiasco. A whole month. Nobody cared. But now that we're all on board with boycotting beer, and many people on the right are realizing, hey, wait a minute, beer's really easy to boycott. Miller Lite, you're next. We got this from Uppoyee. After Bud Light, Miller Lite faces boycott calls for woke beer ad. I guess that's where we're at right now. And I have this uh, clip from The Daily Wire. They posted it. I'm going to play for you this commercial so you can see it for yourself. And I, uh, I responded to The Daily Wire saying this is from one month, one month before the Dylan Mulvaney and Bud Light. But let's... uh. Let's play the commercial for you so you can understand why people are saying boycott Miller Lite. Let me just stress, they're arguing. It's a feminist anti-man commercial. Here you go.
2: Here's a little known fact. Women were among the very first to brew beer ever. From Mesopotamia to the Middle Ages to colonial America, women were the ones doing the brewing. Centuries later, how did the industry pay homage to the founding mothers of beer?
0: They put us in bikinis. What? Women choose to wear bikinis. What are you talking about? It's I I love this. Like they put us in bikinis. You put yourself in bikinis. You literally go to the store and buy them and wear them. Nobody makes you do it. Wow. Look
2: at this. Wild. It's time beer made it up to women.
0: So today Miller Lite beer made it up to women. All of these women were paid handsomely, to appear in commercials where they intentionally wore scantily clad clothing to try and attract men. It's its its like the craziest thing, as if none of these women who are models, who are handsomely paid for this, have any agency. But continue, please. It
2: is on a mission to clean up not just their shit, but the whole beer industry.
0: Oh, the whole beer industry. Huh?
2: Miller Lite has been scouring the Internet for all this and buying it back so that he can turn it into good shit for women brewers.
0: OK, hold, like, let me just break this down for you. They're basically saying they will buy old beer ads of attractive women and turn it into compost. Literally, good shit.
2: How, you ask? Ladies, take it away. First, we turn the bad into compost. Then we feed compost to worms, Push out beautiful fertilizer. That good helps farmers grow quality hops.
0: Which has been donated to women brewers to make their own really good shit donated. I just gotta, you know, look, these old ink chemical pages and magazine pictures and stuff, probably it's not something you want to have in your beer. This sounds more like sabotage, to be honest. Miller is sending hops to people that was grown from chemical-ridden compost. Not interested.
2: But there's definitely more shit out there. In your attic, in the garage, in your parents' basement, send any shit you got into Miller Lite, and they'll turn that into good shit too. Oh. So here's to women, because without us, there would be no
0: beer. Yeah, that's just ridiculous. Without women, there would be no beer. Dude, women are people. That's so dumb. It's like, without people, there'd be no cars. Yeah, probably, unless like dolphins grew hands or something. We get it. Women as humans contribute to the necessity of producing something to consume. Thank you. So uh, the history of beer is quite fantastic. And there's many urban legends, as it were. The idea is uh, generally humans were nomadic until we accidentally discovered beer. We uh, mixed some grains in water or something and then, you know, fermented. And we were like, hey, this is really good. And it makes me feel really good, but it was kind of bad for you. But ultimately what happens is, as they say, maybe I'm wrong. I'm not a beer historian. It was safer to drink lower alcohol content beers because the alcohol killed bad stuff in the water. So societies that had beer tended to do better. Liquid bread, as they called it. It was also a way to store grain because you, if with the fermented carbohydrate liquid, you didn't have to worry about it spoiling because of the alcohol content for the most part. Again, not an expert. But here you are, my friends, from prnewswire.com. This is from March 7th, 2023. Now, I'm not saying don't boycott Miller Lite. I don't care if you do. I think there's good reason to boycott Bud Light. Miller Lite's like, whatever, they did a stupid feminist commercial. I think it's ridiculous. So if you want to boycott them, by all means. But March 7th, they announced this. They said, there's no beer without women. In fact, women were among the first beer brewers in history. Yet for the years that followed, many in the beer industry, Miller Lite included alienated the very people who helped create it. How? By dividing women as consumers, objectifying them in their ads, and frankly, putting a lot of bad-ish out there. Today, Miller Lite is announcing Bad-ish to Good-ish, an initiative creating fertilizer made from old sexist beer advertising. That will be used to grow hops for female brewers. The beer brand is teaming up with producer, comedian, actor and undeniable arbiter of good ish Lana Glazer. Or is it Ilana Glazer to help amend the industry's sexist history of beer, marketing and rectify the past. They're returning the age old objectifying beer ads into. Yeah, okay, it's just it's just the stupidest thing. Here we go. They've been collecting their and other industry outdated age old. No, thank you. Sexist ads displays and posters for months. This is disgusting, by the way. They are turning it into fertilizer. How? How? It's, it's like carbon sheets. You're, 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 you're having that compost. They're growing hops, and then they're going to donate it to 100 female brewers to make 330,000 beers. I will not drink that beer. I do not want to like it's we took our garbage decades old garbage, and then we grew plants from it and served it to you. Yeah, no thanks. You know, I, I gotta be honest, I'll go for the like organic, nature-made beer, if I'm gonna have one. <clears throat> I like yingling. Women are amazing and infinitely creative, and have been erased from building many industries from the ground up, and yet I was still surprised to learn they were among the first beer brewers in history said Alana Glazer. After years of treating women like objects, the beer industry has an opportunity to shed more light on just how powerful men's contribution has been. I'm inspired. Miller Lite created the space. Blah, 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 blah. Dude, whatever, man. Here's what, I, here's what I'm going to say. People are saying like it's an anti-man ad. Yeah, I don't care. I, I don't care about this. Dylan Mulvaney, this a whole other story. Marketing booze to kids, being generally just nails on a chalkboard off-putting, gender ideology, leftism, algorithmic decay. Bad If you're, if, if like, look, the argument is it was objectifying to women and some women were offended by it. And I'm like, okay, whatever, man, if you're a woman and you're like, you want to wear a bikini, nobody made you do it. And now if you're a woman saying like, we're going to make our own beer, I'm like, okay, it's not demeaning to men in any way. Like I literally don't care. There's no, there's no men being insulted. I don't care. Miller, you can do whatever you want. That's why I just saw this. And I'm like, that's not that bad. Who cares? It is gross. That you're going to compost old advertisements with ink and other chemicals and preservatives or whatever's on the paper. That's nasty. I wouldn't want to consume that. Fine. And I think it's, I think the arguments they're making are really silly, but ultimately it's just not a big deal relative to say Bud Light and the Dylan Mulvaney controversy. I love this. Bud Light mocked over coupon amid Dylan Mulvaney controversy. I went to a liquor store. I was going skating up in Hagerstown, Maryland the other day. And we stopped by a liquor store to grab some Gatorades and big, oh, I'm not a fan of Gatorade. It's just all the sugar made me sick. Seriously, it's hard to skate and drink water. But anyway, as we're walking in, I see on the windows, I'm like, where are the Bud Light ads? And I couldn't find them. I'm like, oh, wait, there they are on sale. Big discount. Buy, buy, buy. And I was like, wow, nobody's buying it. Nobody wants to buy it. But when we were there, some lady was buying a whole bunch of it. Now, look, their sales have dropped by like 20 some odd percent, but not everybody cares and not everybody knows about it. In this picture from Ashley St. Clair, she says the Bud Light marketing team must still be all women if they think a coupon will get a man's attention. Oh, <laughs> fire. And it says on, on this these 24 case, easy to drink, easy to enjoy. Get $20 back via rebate. Dude, wait, what? I got to pull this up because you got to see this. You got to see it to believe it. Get $20 back. Let's let's read what it, what, it, what, what, the, what it says. Scan this code using your smartphone. $20 back on what? The case of beer is $19.98. You mean to tell me that they're going to give you the beer for free? Yep. Dude. Bud Light is giving away beer? Is that that seems to be what they're doing. 20 bucks for a 24-pack, then you mail in your rebate and they send you $20 back. They are they are they are giving you free beer you know i got to be honest that might <laughs> might work here's the trick they're hoping to boost sales because who's going to say no to free beer right you buy it get a rebate it's free but then they can claim it's sold do you see what they're doing holy crap the boycott is destroying bud light absolutely amazing as for miller good luck on your endeavors with your weird feminist ad. I don't care. Drink Coors if you got a problem with it. I'll leave it there. Next segment is coming up at 630 on this channel. Thanks for hanging out and I'll see you all then. You may have heard that there was going to be a Netflix Cleopatra movie released, and you may have heard that they had race swapped Macedonian Greek Cleopatra for a black woman. Now, there's been a lot of conversations over the past decade or so about race swapping in films, and a lot of people are not too happy with it. Well, I got good news for all of those naysayers. Race-swapped Cleopatra Netflix earns 1% Rotten Tomatoes audience score, 11% tomato meter. Meaning, even among the professional media class, they roasted this film. But let's talk about the issue of race swapping, and we'll start with this story. Postmonial writes, the Netflix show Queen Cleopatra was released on Wednesday to abysmal ratings. As of publication, the show has over 2,500 audience reviews on Rotten Tomatoes for an aggregate score of 1%, the lowest score possible on the website. The show also has an average critic score of 11%, with only one out of nine critics giving it a favorable rating. With over 35,000 reviews on IMDb, Queen Cleopatra has a rating of 1.1 out of 10, making it among the lowest rated shows listed on the website. That is to say, one of the biggest bombs, critically, ever. The docudrama about the ancient Egyptian queen was the subject of controversy prior to being released due to a black woman portraying Cleopatra. According to CBS, Egyptians were not happy with the producers for appropriating their culture and rewriting history. Quote, since the film is classified as a documentary and not a drama, Those making the film have to be accurate, and it should be based on historical and scientific facts to ensure that history and civilizations are not falsified. The Egyptian ministry said the rejection of the film before its screening was in defense of the history of Queen Cleopatra and has nothing to do with racism. Lawyer Mahmoud El-Semery filed a formal complaint to investigate and possibly ban Netflix in Egypt over the controversy. We have known for thousands of years that Cleopatra is of Greek origin and was born in Egypt. This is a fact. Our main objection is the falsification of these facts. It is not about being black or white or even yellow. Let's say they wanted to portray Cleopatra as a man. We would also object to that. I did think people would talk about it, and I did think people would be excited about it. Cleopatra actress Adele James told Glamour, there are versions of Cleopatra that exist already with with actresses in that role who are fairer skinned than I am. But I think I have every right to have a shot at humanizing this incredible woman. No, I disagree. I'll tell you why. I don't care about race swapping. Uh Uh-oh, we got another story. Harry Potter fans call for black actress to depict Hermione in woke TV series, yet voice concern over handling of problematic slavery storyline. (laughs) Uh-oh. You can't have it both ways, dudes. I also want to point out that when I first read Harry Potter when I was a kid, I thought it was pronounced Hermione, because I have never heard of the name Hermione, and so I was just reading the book saying Hermione in my head, and I'm sure many of you did too. But now we know. Now I don't care too much about Hermione being played by any actress. Literally, I don't. Um, if if they want to have it be a black actress, that's fine. Literally, I don't care. I don't think the books ever described her as being like white skinned or anything. They said frizzy haired or something like that. But even in that case, I literally don't care if a person acts as another person. There is a fair element to say that if a character is written, we're trying to find an actor who fits that character's mold to a certain degree. Meaning, if you make a character who's a white supremacist, dude with a buzz cut, and he's a white man, it doesn't make sense to put a black guy in that role. And if you're going to go that route, then we probably should say actors should typically represent the, 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 the image of the character. Maybe if the character is gay, you don't need a gay person to play it. Maybe a gay person can play a straight person. A straight person can play a gay person because that's not outwardly expressed. But if the character is explicitly written as a white person or a black person, it makes sense. But ultimately, I don't care all too much. As for Cleopatra, dude, you're making a docu series. You are literally creating a, a, a dramatization-ish. It's a documentary series about a historical figure. Now, if you're gonna do a docudrama and they race swap someone, I kind of shrug and I'm like, eh, it's probably in poor taste, but I, I care a lot less. Then I say that I think they did what Anne Boleyn. They had a play, like they had a black woman play Anne Boleyn, and it's like maybe you shouldn't. Maybe you should get someone who actually fits the the, the historical figure, even if it is a drama. I can agree with that to a certain degree. I'm like kind of like, well, you know, I don't care too much, but uh, yeah, I get it. If it's Harry Potter. Literally don't care if they get a black actress to play Harry Potter. Uh, I'm sorry, Hermione. Because they did that before in The Cursed Child. They got, um, who was it? Noma Dumaswini. Uh, I, I don't care. That's fine. Uh, people look different and they play characters. I got no beef. Cleopatra, on the other hand, I think you get the point. But let's read the story from Daily Mail since it's funny. Harry Potter fans have sparked discussion over the internet about the casting of Hermione Granger in the upcoming TV adaptation of the books. It was announced last month that an HBO TV, uh, HBO Max TV series of the seven book series by J.K. Rowling will go ahead. With Warner Brothers revealing that each season, which are to be executive produced by J.K., will be based on one of the books in the franchise. It's a brilliant idea. The movies actually cut out a lot of important details from the books, and it's fine. The books were also made into eight Harry Potter films, which grossed more than six billion at the box office. Since the news was announced, discussion has arisen. Regarding the race of actress, of the actress playing Hermione, as there have been frequent debate about whether the book bookish witch was black or white, something JK has never specified. Many fans have called for a black actress to be cast, which led to further debate about how the SPEW storyline will be handled, in which Hermione launches an anti-slavery campaign for house elves in Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire. (laughs) Uh Uh-oh. I mean, maybe it makes sense. Discourse around a black Hermione first began in 2015 when it was announced that South African British actress Noma Dumezweni would play Hermione in Harry Potter and the Cursed Child, a stage play released the following year. Following outcry about casting, J.K. stated that she had never specified Hermione's race, and while it was shared that in Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban, she wrote white face, she insisted it was a reference to shock, not literal. Please. On the backlash, she said at the time, With my experience of social media, I thought that idiots were going to idiot. But what can you say? That's the way the world is. Noma was chosen because she was the best actress for the job. And I think that's probably fine. But let's just be real. White faced? Come on, dude. You're making a reference to someone going pale, right? But clearly the reference still has racial connotations. I don't care that you said it. But we all know you intended and envisioned Hermione as a white person. I don't care if a black actress plays the character. I just can't stand the fake, the, 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 the virtue signaling. Now, head of casting for the TV series, fans took to Twitter to speculate over the casting of Hermione, noting a black actress was probable. Why, though? Twitter uses penned. I wouldn't be surprised if Hermione is black in the new Harry Potter reboot. I want them to hire a black trans actress as Hermione in the new series, or I'm calling it that Hermione is going to be black or Harry Potter, dude if they do that, it will bomb. People aren't going to watch it. Don't get Woco Broke HBO. You know, this is a bad idea. Sorry to disappoint some of you, but I'd love to see a Black Hermione in the upcoming Harry Potter TV series. J.K. Rowling even likes it. There was already a Black woman playing Hermione in the theatrical play, and J.K. loved it, and I think that's fine. If you're going to do a Harry Potter remake, at least give us a Black Hermione. And don't make uh, and don't make Ron stop being ginger. It'll be funny if they make Ron black and then they make Hermione the same, because like the, the gag is that they keep getting rid of gingers for black characters. That's the very least. We didn't want this remake to begin with. I really hope J.K. Rowling sticks to her guns and makes Hermione black in the HBO Potter reboot like she previously said she would be OK with doing. I hope she just sticks to the book. That's about it. I hope I hope J.K. Rowling t- says we're going to be. It's going to be the book. We're going to make the books. OK. None of this weird virtue signaling woke nonsense. If they really are going to remake Harry Potter, as they said, elsewhere, Hermione's fight against slavery was pointed out, as well as the frequent mudblood slur used against her to indicate that she's a witch with muggle parents. In the fourth book, Hermione starts the Society for the Promotion of Elfish Welfare, SPEW, an organization founded in 1994 in response to what she saw as gross injustice in the treatment of house elves at the 1994 Quidditch World Cup. Her passionate campaigning, they're, 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 they're reporting this as if it's a real thing. You know what I mean? Like, it actually, no, Okay, what are you talking about? Twitter users continued thinking about the potential of a black address. Okay, okay, we get it. We get it. We get it. We get it. My favorite thing about Harry Potter is that there's people who are so obsessed with it that they believe, or they pretend to believe, that Harry Potter is real. The story actually happened in the 90s, and to celebrate the history in the wizarding world, J.K. Rowling wrote it up as if it was fiction so that muggles could truly know the history of the wizarding world. And so the greatness of Harry Potter could be shared with everyone. Okay, dude, millennials, you need to read other books. Books exist. There's more than just Harry Potter. But it's seemingly the only thing they've ever read. Anyway, more to the point wrapping this all up. Race swapping. Do we care? Honestly, I don't care all that much. I think it's better to stay true to the intent of the characters, but if you're making a documentary series, you probably should not race swap a Macedonian Greek historical figure with a black actress. You're going to piss people off, namely in Egypt. I'll leave it there. Next segment's coming up tonight at 8 p.m. over at youtube.com slash timcast Thanks for hanging out, and I'll see you all then.